This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. We learned on Tuesday that hospital ER and ICU closures and cutbacks caused by staff shortages have hit the country's largest hospital in Ontario's largest health system. Toronto General Hospital is under a critical care bed alert in three of the intensive care units at the University Hospital Network facility. The affected areas are its cardiovascular, cardiac, and medical surgical ICUs. It is the latest sign of Ontario's continued healthcare staffing crunch, with at least 25 hospitals across the province forced to scale back or temporarily close emergency rooms and intensive care units over this past long weekend. On Wednesday, Libby spoke with a number of stakeholders about the devolving situation in Ontario hospitals, starting with Dr. Kevin Smith, President and CEO of the University Health Network. Network. We've been on a critical care bed alert since uh, July the 22nd, and uh, obviously we continue to do our very best to ensure that our staffing ratios are as good as they can be. And uh, we worry not only about our patients, but also about the quality of work life and resilience of our staff. Would you consider this a crisis? I know crisis is a word laden with lots of issues. It certainly feels like a crisis for the frontline staff. So, you know, what if our nurses feel it's a crisis? It's a crisis. Um, do I feel like if the system is imploding? I've heard people talk about, you know, really the system imploding. The system is challenged, not only here or across our country and across our world. This is a international trend. Um, what we're not, what we haven't had to do, uh, unlike when we were at the peak of COVID, was dramatically scale back our, our scheduled care. And I would say when we got to a, a, a true crisis, we really have to stop what some refer to as elective. I prefer to call scheduled care. But, you know, we, we kind of have the perfect storm. It's August. Our staff need and deserve a break. They are getting their kids ready to go back to school. They've been working much too hard for much too long. We've got this new disease now incorporated into the system called COVID. Today, there are about 45 active patients in beds at UHN, which are 45 fewer beds available. Um, and of course, we have uh, significant numbers of personnel who are saying, I don't want to work in as acute an environment at this. I'm burnt out after two and a half years of working this hard. So maybe I don't want to leave healthcare, but I really need a break from these highest intensity environments. And, um, of course, that, as I mentioned, is happening internationally. Let's bring in Dr. Doris Greenspoon, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, and Helen Winter, a registered nurse working in the emergency department of a downtown Toronto hospital. Doris, uh, I, I don't know if you were listening to all of what Dr. Smith had to say. He said it, it, it's a big challenge. Uh, he hesitated to call it a crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that it is a crisis. I think I agree with 
about everything that uh, Dr. Smith, Kevin said, uh, he and I have discussed also the matter. Uh, what I don't agree is that September will be better. I do not think September will be better. I do not agree on waiting bill, with Bill 124 till March or November or anything. I think August 8, the Premier should announce that that bill is gone. Uh, it's not only the bill that will help, but the bill, as you have heard us say before, is a red flag for nurses that they are not valued. Uh, it's easy for Dr. Smith to say that uh, money is not all. I agree, money is not all. Every nurse will tell you that it's money and workloads. Money because they need to, they cannot have a decrease of almost 7% uh, of compensation at the time that their workloads have been heavier than ever and, and workloads because they want to deliver outstanding care and they're unable under the conditions today. Helen Winter, uh, tell us about your experience. What's it like for you working in these circumstances? Well, I just finished working six days straight. So (laughs) six, 12 hour shifts, because that's what it takes to get the bills paid now. Uh, It is disgusting. I don't know what is going to be called a crisis. We're so far beyond a crisis. Uh, What's it going to take? I have no idea. If this isn't a crisis, then then I can only look at horror movies just to think of what would constitute a crisis. People are dying. They're, they're dying from lack of care. They're dying because we don't have the resources. There was one point yesterday where I, w- I suddenly realized I am doing the job of six people. Toronto ER nurse Helen Winter, Dr. Doris Grinspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, and Dr. Kevin Smith, President and CEO of the University Health Network. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. All of us are feeling the pinch of high inflation, which recently hit 8.1%. And those of us in the workforce are wondering, will our salaries keep up with this nearly 40-year high inflation? The average annual increase of seven major union wage settlements in March and April was 3.1%. That's almost double the average pace of pay increases between March 2020 and January of this year. Now, representatives with the Public Service Alliance of Canada, which advocates for 120,000 workers, or about a third of federal employees, are demanding annual pay increases of 4 And the union representing education workers has just called for nearly 12% increases. Libby was joined by Rocco Rossi, president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, to get his take on the situation. As interest rates are being raised to um, to basically uh, slow uh, inflation and slow economic activity, the danger is if you go too far too fast, does it throw things into recession? How long will the inflation numbers last? There's no question there are up rounds um, in many sectors because, as you say, there are labor shortages. When we um, uh, survey our members, 62% 
uh, are pointing to um, to labor shortages, but they also want to avoid locking in long-term deals uh, if, in fact, things turn. So what I expect to see is a push not so much uh, to uh, still uh, a push to higher, uh, but but trying to do them for shorter terms. Right. Uh, I know that some companies also, uh, in an attempt to avoid locking things in, you know, they may go with bonuses, which are one-time things instead of uh, percentage pay hikes. Is that something for, you're seeing? For sure, we're seeing we're seeing a fair bit of that because if you if you build in on a permanent basis. Um, increases. And as you said, the fear is and, and why the Bank of Canada is, is worried and is increasing rates is you don't want to create what they call a, a wage spiral where you see inflation go up, so wages go up, but then that affects the cost of everything. And unless there's significant productivity gains, uh, then, then the increases don't don't sustain themselves, right? Because they simply add to costs, uh, and so you end up on this on this treadmill that we saw uh, in the uh, in the seventies during the last uh, period of uh, of pronounced and prolonged uh, inflation to what was referred to as stagflation, because we weren't seeing the productivity increases. When you have those. Then, then not only can you pay people more, uh, but then that doesn't have a, an impact on increasing the price of everything. Do you have a sense from your members about what they think they will have to pay to keep their people, maybe to hire new ones? Again, you're seeing a wide range um, depending on the sector and the size and capability of the of the firm, you're seeing, um, you know, you're seeing players like the the big banks uh, moving uh, their minimum scales uh, well ahead of where uh, technical minimum wage uh, is, uh, because they needed to keep uh, full staff, uh, and that will continue. And they clearly have the capacity. It a lot more difficult for the small and medium-sized players who don't have the same pricing power and ability to simply whatever extra they have to pay is charging uh, more. And so that ends up making their uh, their businesses less uh, and less economical. And after the stresses and strains that they've, they've faced, uh, over the last two and a half years, along with everybody else, but but particularly in their in their cases, very often having to shut down, having to take on additional uh, debt, uh, they're less able uh, to build in, particularly uh, built-in increases versus, as you suggested, uh, one-time uh, payments to try to assist in what everyone sees as a difficult time. Rocco Rossi, president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. He was in conversation with Libby on Wednesday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, the drama continues at Brampton City Hall. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. On Thursday, the day we look at all things municipal, we began in Brampton with yet another example of a deeply divided city council playing out in public. The city's former integrity commissioner, Muniza Sheikh, is suing Brampton and the city councillors who voted to fire her for $20 million, arguing her firing was part of a conspiracy by some councillors who were not happy over previous or ongoing ethics investigations into their activities. It is a lawsuit that happens to have the support of the current mayor, Patrick Brown. Meantime, at a news conference earlier in the week, Mayor Brown alleged that municipal funds were used as hush payments in a city councillor's sexual harassment lawsuit without being approved by him or city council. Our Tune Into the Town panel addressed both issues. Lauren O'Neill is senior news editor at Blog TO. David Crombie is a former Toronto mayor. And Karen Stintz is CEO of Variety Village. First and foremost, why the Integrity Commissioner would file a judicial review? Because the reality is council can terminate a contract as long as the person that they're terminating receives adequate compensation. So as long as they pay her out, they can terminate her for whatever reason they want. Procedurally, it appears to be in order. What's interesting is that Patrick Brown is now getting behind it to, as some sort of claim that, that she's been um, let go because of, because of her work investigating counselors. So, but that's her job. So all of it seems to be very muddled and confusing and but fundamentally, I would, I, would, I would wonder, why is she doing this? Because even if she's proven successful, how can she possibly go back to that position? David Crombie, what do you make of it? Well, it looks like it's an on, part of an ongoing struggle for Brampton to, to do its business in order. I mean, it, uh, it's, it has a bit of a tradition in the recent past of, uh, of, of, of not uh, of having great divisions within its council and warring factions within its council. That looks like it's continuing. I guess a couple of things occur occur to me, uh, and, and that is that the, the council obviously needs a full time mayor, uh, and it and it seems to me that but whatever value, and I think he's been a good mayor generally speaking, um, you can't do it in a part time way. It's a big city, and so he needs to. There needs to be within the council itself an understanding that the mayor has has an authority that needs to be respected, and he wasn't there to. I, I gather then because he was busy elsewhere, uh, 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 attending, attending to the business of the council. I think the other thing that, that, uh, that impresses me uh, is that the council itself is so divisive that, uh, that we, you can only hope that, that, that the forthcoming election is going to be able to allow the council to start anew with a, with a mayor that can be there full time. Lauren, uh, what about you? It was interesting earlier this week, uh, this whole business of, uh, and it's hard for me, in some places I see it characterized as sexual harassment and others as sexual assault. So, uh, uh, and it ended in a civil suit by this complainant, which the city settled out of court. Patrick Brown said that neither he nor counsel 
approved it, uh, which leaves you to wonder who did. (laughs) And it wasn't disclosed. So how do you see that? Right. So a lot of times in cases that have to do with sexual harassment and, and sexual assault, uh, the there are confidentiality clauses. So the victim is not named. Um, so nobody really knows what went on there. But the fact that the victim or the alleged victim was paid $60,000 says that something might have been amiss. I, I mean, I'm not really quite sure. And the fact that nobody knew that he paid this money is a little suspicious to me. Um I think the whole thing is... It was the city. It wasn't him. Oh, but like that nobody knew that the city, I guess, had paid like that. It just seems all a little bit suspicious. And, and I think it's just ironic because uh, Patrick Brown said recently that Dylan had told him he had made it his mission to get the integrity uh, commissioner fired. And one of the reasons for that is because she had charged $750,000 since the beginning of 2020. And it was just way too much money. I mean, they... The, Peel has a cap, I guess, on it of $110,000 a year. So how did she even get that much money in the first place? Like, who was approving that? Who is making all of these secretive payments that the public isn't knowing about in Brampton? That's kind of what I'm interested in. It's, it's all feeling like a big soap opera at this point. We've now got a $20 million lawsuit for conspiracy, something that Mayor Patrick Brown is no stranger to. Like, <laughs> this is just a whole big, a lot of drama. Lauren O'Neill is senior news editor of Blog TO. David Crombie is a former Toronto mayor. And Karen Stintz is CEO at Variety Village. Fightbacks tune into the town panel heard every Thursday after the noon news. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Did you watch the third and final federal conservative leadership debate on Wednesday? The final viewership has not been tallied, but was just a slice of the more than 600,000 party members who are entitled to vote for the next leader. Aside from slagging the two contenders who did not show up, Pierre Poiliev and Dr. Leslin Lewis, Jean Charest's pitch focused on him being the only candidate who could ultimately become Canada's next prime minister. The day after, Libby was joined for a discussion about the conservative debate with former Ontario PC cabinet minister Janet Ecker and Michael Diamond, principal of Upstream Strategy Group. Listen, anytime you put your candidates in front of your potential voters, it's, you know, it's a good thing. I mean, it's part of the accountability mechanism and, and that should be happening in a political organization. So, and yeah, nobody, I mean, very rarely the debate format get good brownie points. I mean, there are some that do really well, but, uh, you know, people bitch about them all the time. So having your candidates out there, having them an opportunity to sort of show their stuff, as it were, is always a good thing. Um, and uh, it is unfortunate that, you know, two candidates decided not to do it. Um, you know, it does sort of show, I think, disrespect for the party. I and mean, you can agree or disagree. And I've been part of debates that I thought were a bit crazy in my past. But, you know, you have to respect the process. And it was unfortunate that uh, two of them didn't. Michael, uh, what do you think? Look, having watched it, I think that uh, the uh, two candidates who skipped it probably made the right decision. Uh, in many ways, you know, the first uh, English debate uh, moderated by Tom Clark uh, with the uh, uh, bazooka music, as uh, Janet said, or bazooka sounds, was really uh, ridiculed for being poor. And I think last night was actually even worse. So, you know, uh, uh, I can't fault either candidates. These were, this debate was sprung on after 
after uh, the schedule was put uh, put together at the request of uh, Mr. Charest's campaign. I understand why you know they they're scrambling and they need to try and get anything to gain some traction. They have a pretty big deficit to catch up to, uh, but uh, fully understand why you know, Pierre Polyev would have thought that it was a much better use of his time to be in uh, Saskatchewan getting the vote out. And you know, Libby, you referenced the numbers on uh, YouTube watching. Of course, we don't know the television numbers, and it was on several of the networks. But uh, Pierre's uh, YouTube and uh, social media feeds actually had four times the viewership of the parties on the debate last night. So I think you know he was able to connect with many more people. And, and, and furthermore, I mean, I just wish since it happened, the party had done a better job at selecting questions that actually allowed each candidate to project how their vision uh, would connect to their plans to win the election. And I think that was uh, not really uh, something they focused on. Talking about a conservative plan on climate change, for example, isn't isn't that. You know, let the candidates uh, talk about that if that's part of their vision. But it was too, uh, too forced last night. Final question. Uh, do uh, either of you, uh, starting with Michael, have an inkling of uh, what percentage of people have already voted and what percentage of, of voter turnout you expect? So it was actually uh, the, the last report from the party I saw was actually quite low of the uh, uh, over 670,000, I believe it was, uh, eligible voters. I think it was only about 14% of ballots had been received, and of, of that, it is a rather complicated process, and there's a lot of room for human error in terms of how you have to seal the envelopes and include identification. So uh, of that, I believe it was 14%. Don't know what that was of uh, of uh, you know, final, uh, or sorry, approved uh, mail-in ballots. Voters who make that mistake will get a second chance. But, uh, you know, I would expect, frankly, higher turnout uh, than last time. I think you see these things pick up well towards the end where you get really literally an avalanche of ballots in, in the mail and by delivery uh, to the uh, auditing firm. So uh, I, I would expect you'll see turnout north of 70, uh, but right now it is uh, pretty low. Well, yeah, I mean... Great. I was just going to say that the latest as of Friday is 22%, so 140,000. Now, again, how many of those are, are valid? As Michael said, I don't know, but... So it's growing, and hey, we're all deadline-driven people, and my guess is that over the next couple of weeks, if, you ha- if your ballot hasn't gone in there, uh, I suspect you're going to be getting uh, the usual uh, get-out-the-vote harassing calls from candidates. So uh, Michael, hopefully Michael's right that it is up in the, you know, 70-some percent. That would be really, really good because there's no question um, between the, the group of them, they have sold more party memberships in our party than has ever been done before. And hopefully that's a good sign. And hopefully those people will stick with us. Former Ontario PC Cabinet Minister Janet Ecker and Michael Diamond, Principal of Upstream Strategy Group. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Helen in Toronto phoned during our segment on the latest hate crime stats across the country. I think 
these racist incidents, both Islamic and Jewish, are very underreported. A lot of people are afraid to report because um, they may be noticed. And then, it, you know, what isn't reported is as bad as what is. There was recently a, um, what do you call it, a Zoom broadcast which showed what was happening and how the media was also part of it, and it showed specific places where Trump had said uh, the Proud Boys and the anti-racists and all the others were actually very good people. And I don't think uh, the people who are doing this would ever forget something like that, because after all, a head of state says they're good people, um, which only gives them more, should we say, power or will to do these things. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Ray in Etobicoke, who phoned about how he, as an older Canadian, feels ignored by the Trudeau Liberals. I've... uh had a, a problem that uh, the current government, I tried to bring it up with my MP, got no response, and also uh, the Minister of Finance. That's on mandatory withdrawals from your RIF, and uh, that increases my income tax. The first year I had to do that, my taxes went up $10,000, and I continue to get this. Uh, the money sits in a checking account getting zero interest. And I've asked them to make it so that I decide when to withdraw money and take it when I need it. And uh, no response. The prime minister that uh, pushed on this years ago, a different prime minister, he said to the seniors, look after yourself in your old age. So the banks, which already had RRSPs, they jumped on the bandwagon. Oh, yeah, you know, contribute, and you'll be able to and retire and move uh, to beyond on Easy Street. I, I never made it to Easy Street. I'm still in the same old place. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.